A meal, for some, is simply food to ingest. For others, it is time to connect with friends and family. But for Jesus, it was an occasion to demonstrate the character of God in surprising ways. It was in the context of a meal that Jesus showed us his heart while others sat around a table with him. You're invited to pull up a chair and prepare to experience Jesus, the dinner guest, sitting across the table as you witness the extraordinary. Because when Jesus came to dinner, it was always more than a meal. Thank you, thank you. Hey, it is so good to be here. I love it. We've only been here a few hours this morning, but we're already feeling like we're part of this place. I'm here with my son, Isaac, and we're grateful to be here. Wow. Palm Sunday, baptisms, a memorial service for a man who lived for Jesus yesterday, a wedding. Wow, a lot going on. What an amazing opportunity to dive into your lives. I'm kind of disappointed we don't have a baby dedication in the Lord's Supper, too. There's... <laughs> Throw it all in there. And, and on top of that, the Dows are old friends from Wheaton, uh, from Biola, going way back, from Biola. And I'm here the morning your daughter is baptized. I knew you before you were married. Yes. And now look at us. What in the world? It's so great. I love being here on this morning. It's so good. Last time I saw Dan, he, he brought my neighbor back to life. It was just amazing. It was, did you know I was there? I was there, yeah. Well, my next door neighbor, Sirens, I ran across the street, went into their house, and I got there, and I looked at grand, the, the grandfather, and he, I said, he's dead. And he technically was. And I got there about the same time as Dan. I gathered the family to pray, and he, I went to work, and he went to work, and he brought the guy back to life. And on the way out, I said, that's Dan. And he's on the way out. And I gave him a high five. He didn't even barely look at me. I want to take responsibility as well for bringing the man back to life. He, he didn't know I was there. I certainly knew he was. For him, it was just crazy. He walks out. I'm like, just another day at work for Dan Dow, right? Just bringing people back to life. But how cool now. I couldn't help making the connection between your daughter doing this symbolic resurrection, Right? Dying with Jesus, come back to life. Oh, all these things are working together. It's just amazing. I love it. Work with Rick Langer. He used to be on staff here at Biola. Lots of good connections here. I'm a pastor at an evangelical free church down La Mirada as well. So it's so good to be here. I see this as a sacred privilege to join with you. I want you to know I come with the prayer blessing and encouragement and happiness of my church. Here's a little picture of a few people at my church. Those are some of our food bank volunteers. I love my church. That's my church family. And this is just a glimpse of my family that I get to live with every day. And this is my family. Can you believe that's my family? Yes. So that's my wife of 29 years, Donna, who's incredible and godly and brilliant. And my daughter, Caroline, and Paige, and Sam, and Isaac, who just walked by with a palm frond. First time he's done that. He was pumped. I don't know if you saw him, but it was just great. He was. He was like, Dad, why don't we do this? It was great. Maybe we have to now. All right. Um, well, I'm so thrilled to be here. I love the series you're doing, More Than a Meal. I love food. One of my favorite books, which I highly encourage you to read, is The Supper of the Lamb. C-A-P-O-N. Capon is the author. And he was a chef, pastor, theologian. And the whole book is oriented around a five-course 
a rack of lamb dinner for seven. It's just beautiful. And he's a, he weaves it. It's a whole chapter on the, the, the amazement of the onion. It's just fantastic. I love food. I believe food is loaded with theological import. And if you read the Bible, you can't miss it. It's all over the place. Just think about it. Right in Genesis 1, God provides all kinds of food for us. With this need we have for food, and then this provision of food. And then three, uh, two chapters later in Genesis 3, what's... The Lawrences are here, yes? It's Christian here. John? No, okay. Bless you. That's another thing. Christian Lawrence, now John Lawrence, goes to, went to our church for years. It was an incredible blessing. So our church was blessed because of your godliness. So good to be here on this morning when, when Christian's dad heard, well done, just a few days ago. So good to be here in that way too. So uh, food, it's all over the place in the Bible. Then two chapters after Genesis 1, what's the issue in the fall? It's a piece of food, right? It's a piece of fruit. And throughout the Bible, I could give you dozens of examples. You've got Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of porridge of all things. You've got in the wilderness, the big issue is over and over again, manna. Is God going to provide our daily bread, our need? And he does. And they're complaining and it's a big issue throughout. And then the laws instituted and core to that is feasts and festivals. And, and then fasting becomes a spiritual discipline. And I could give you lots of examples. You get to the New Testament and Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread from heaven. He's born in Bethlehem, house of bread. How cool is that? Very cool. And that's what Bethlehem means, house of bread. You you have the central observance of the Lord's Supper, which is taking some food and reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us. How does it all end With with a wedding banquet, a feast? Oh, food is this beautiful thing. So this theme, more than a meal, values this meal, this common expression of our our frailty, our neediness, our humanity. What's more human than sharing a meal together and eating food together? And have you ever felt sort of awkward if you're eating with someone who isn't? This sort of is, come on, you should be doing this with me. I'm expressing my humanity here, and you should do it with me. It's just some odd if we're all not eating, right? It's because eating and meals are so central to being human. It's one of the main ways we share relationship and express hospitality. Beautiful theme, even more so in Jesus' time than in ours. So it's just a great theme, great message, but to point beyond itself, as is food. As is fellowship, it it points beyond itself to God and who he is and what he's done for us. So it's a great theme, and I am so privileged to have an amazing meal and one of my heroes to talk about. It's in Luke chapter 7, and this hero of mine is an amazing woman. This may seem strange to you, hopefully not. I have a list of people... I want to spend time with in heaven, sort of in descending order of importance. Now, Jesus is clearly at the top of the list. I don't know. I just picture having a long wait to talk to him when I get there. I'm just assuming a lot of people haven't said that. So I may have to wait a million years or something. So I've got other people in descending order I want. And what's been interesting in my life is at the top of the list after Jesus was Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah and Peter and Paul and John and Mary and all these, these heroes of the faith. But you know what's been happening? The more I've been understanding what it means to really be a Christian, 
There have been these individuals moving up the list. Like, I want to talk to the one leper who came and expressed gratitude to Jesus when the nine others didn't. I want to talk to that woman who gave just a little bit, but for her it was everything. Unimpressive from a worldly standpoint, but Jesus says, look at that woman. She just gave everything. Everything she had. I want to find out what was going on in her life and have a long conversation with her. A widow who gave it all. And the hero of my faith, of our faith that we're looking at this morning, she's been moving up the list. I want to talk to this woman that we hear about who's a hero of the faith. She really, really understands what it means to be a Christian, to really get the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what it is. She knows how much she has been forgiven. I'm realizing more and more that there's nothing that is more at the very heart of being a Christian than knowing how much you've been forgiven. Both that you desperately needed forgiveness and that you really have it. So, let's go to Luke chapter 7. And see our hero here. Let me pray. Lord, help us now as we go to your word. We need you. We need to think differently than we all did when we walked in here. We need to be able to see how heroic this woman is. What a phenomenal example to us she is. Help us to put our lives in perspective when we look at hers. And most of all, when we look at Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 7. Get ready. This is awesome. Anybody who says the Bible's boring has clearly not read it. It's not boring. Listen. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke 7, 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, 
he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever's been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay. This is just an incredible story. We have the main point here, Jesus evaluating the lives of this Pharisee, this leader, Simon, and this sinner woman from the city, from the town. We don't even know her name, which is also true of that one leper and that widow who gave it all. It's interesting to me that often the heroic, the ones who get it most, don't even get their names mentioned. When I get to heaven, I'm hoping and assuming there's some sort of directory (laughs) that won't just give names, but the widow who gave it all. Oh, that's her name. Where can I find her? But And the same with this woman. We don't even know her name. But the point is, like Simeon say in Luke chapter 2, and Anna, these heroes who can see Jesus when no one else seems to be able to, we, don't, we, we have to be told their names. They need introduction, right? They're not significant from a worldly point of view. They don't have a reputation, you know, sometimes... You hear people introduce, this person needs no introduction. Well, from a worldly point of view, this woman needed an introduction. These heroes of the faith often aren't significant from the world's perspective. And far more so, this woman is not just not significant. She is at the margins. She's at the very edges, if that, in this society. There's no one you would consider less important, less significant, less... uh, showing you what it means to be one of God's people than a woman who no doubt has been living the life of a prostitute. That's what these descriptions are politely trying to say about this woman. She had lived her life giving herself, her body, in that level of brokenness and sinfulness. And you could say hopelessness. But she's our hero. And what Jesus does for us here is contrast Simon, the Pharisee, with this sinful woman. 
this Pharisee, Pharisees didn't like Jesus. They were opposed to Jesus. And so before we critique in any negative way Simon, I want us to think about these admirable qualities of Simon. Simon's a Pharisee. He's part of a group that doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, that is opposing him, oppressing him. It will eventually lead to killing him. But Simon, this Pharisee, like the only other Pharisee we know of who took this kind of interest in Jesus, Nicodemus, Nicodemus wasn't even willing to meet with Jesus in daylight. Simon's willing to invite him to his home. It's pretty amazing. He's got a level of interest that opens him up to great scorn from his fellow Pharisees. So let's acknowledge something really good about him. He's, he's what we could call a seeker, someone who's interested in Jesus, wants to find out about him by his conclusion that this can't be a prophet. He must have been wondering, is this the prophet of God we've been waiting for? Is this the Messiah? Is this the anointed one who would bring the kingdom of God and take away the sins of the world? This is the one we've been waiting for or not. I need to see. And then he watches Jesus receive this woman, welcome her, show beautiful hospitality. And Simon judges her and judges Jesus because of his acceptance of her. But what kind of seeker is he? It appears he's a very intellectual seeker. He knows lots of theology. He knows lots about the Bible. You could say he had the kind of vocation that I have. It's kind of a stinging rebuke to those of us who would ever think that attaining some level of theological sophistication necessarily means at all that you really know Jesus. See, this isn't just intellectual. It's not just rational. What he's saying to Simon is, you have an interest, but your interest sets an agenda of the way you're going to meet me. And he's basically saying to Simon, contrasting with this woman, you didn't even show me basic hospitality. Oh, you welcomed me into your home. But this woman shows the kind of love and adoration and devotion and worship that Simon, you should be showing to me as well. Imagine how that sounded to Simon. So you're telling me, Okay, maybe I didn't welcome you in that the way I maybe should have in this society with these basic expressions of hospitality. But are you saying you want me to fall at your feet and weep at your feet and express that sort of unbridled devotion? And Jesus is saying, yeah, yep. Well, well that's so wrong for me to lower myself like that. No, it isn't. If you really know who Jesus is, that's exactly what he deserves. And so he's contrasting this man who's lived an upright life and a good religious life and in the social setting has been very successful. But Jesus is pointing out that God doesn't view outward appearance. What does he view? The heart. The heart. And we are all about outward appearance. Where in the world and in human history have we been more obsessed with outward appearance than Southern California? Probably no closer culture to Corinth ever in human history than Southern California culture, obsessed with superficial appearance. What's on the outside, not what's on the inside. And Jesus is flipping that. He's wanting us to see that this woman really understands God and knows God and is intimate with God. And this religious man, this impressive religious man externally is missing it. 
this woman who is a beautiful mess. That's a good description of Christians who really get it. We're a beautiful mess. We are people who've gotten to the end of ourselves, and sometimes the difficulties of life get us there. The circumstances force us to realize that we can't solve our problems on our own. We desperately need a savior because we're desperately wicked. And it's very often those who have had an undeniable exposure to the wickedness of this life around them and within themselves that get this best. Those who know they've been forgiven much. Over and over again in my life, I meet later in life converts after they had lived like hell who have gotten to the end of themselves and seen that Jesus loves them even in the midst of their sin. And so often those are the people who walk around saying, can you believe it? Can you believe Jesus forgave us? We're forgiven. We really are. And that should describe Christians. We should all have jaw problems like TMJ because we walk around with our mouths open in amazement all the time that we're actually forgiven because we know how desperately we needed forgiveness and we really have it in him. That should exemplify a Christian. See, it's not just superficial things. In some ways, a morally upright life can set you up to miss Jesus more than a, a life of depravity. Because you may think that you are accepted by God because of your church attendance or the fact that you haven't ever done that kind of sin. But here comes this woman who's lived as sinfully as you could in this society and maybe even in ours, and she expresses a nakedness and unashamedness in the midst of judgmental religious leaders. My goodness, what an example to us. Now, it's not strange that she just burst into a dinner party at someone's home. There wasn't such a priority on privacy in this culture as there is in ours. And these dinners would often take place in a courtyard area. And it's not unusual for someone to just kind of wander in and listen to what's going on and wander out. And this woman comes in, and as they're reclining, not sitting at a table, but as Todd showed you, I think, a week or two ago, uh, reclining, leaning on a pillow and eating with a low table. So you, Jesus might not have even noticed her until he felt warm tears on his feet, tears of gratitude, tears of someone who knows she's been forgiven much, can't deny it, can't avoid it, and can't believe it. But she does, and she comes to Jesus, and she takes this symbol, this alabaster flask, this very important thing. Now, body odor was a really prevalent thing in the first century, way more than our century. And so someone who made a living with her body, it's very helpful to have perfume to give a, a fragrance that's pleasing. And, and very often, they, she, they would. They'd keep it around their neck because just the flask unopened would provide a fragrance that was pleasing. But when she comes to Jesus, she not only anoints his feet with her tears, but she breaks open the flask and empties its contents, basically saying, I'm giving up this means of making a living with my own self. 
I'm giving it to the one who gave himself for me. I don't need it anymore. I'm going to pour it all out. And what I want you to see about her is that her devotion to Jesus, her worship for Jesus, is expensive. This is not an inexpensive thing she's giving. She's not only in itself, but what it enables her to do, make a living. She pours it out on Jesus' feet. And it's extravagant. She lets down her hair. There, there is a very sensual, uh, you, you might even say sexual element to this story. You know, God creates things like sensual things and sexuality as a way of expressing something far deeper and far more important and something spiritual. That's why it's a horrible lie to think sex is just a physical thing. No, it actually points well beyond just the body to spiritual things and things that really and ultimately and eternally matter. Freud told us that worship is just the expression of uh, oppressed and suppressed sexuality. When the truth is, I've read, the truth is that our immorality sexually is just an expression of suppressed worship. We get misdirected in these gifts of God and and we turn them into idols and we find expression in immoral sexuality that is really just trying to find the kind of intimacy and joy in relationship God's created us for in himself. And this woman takes down her hair. Now it's interesting in this context this was Stunning. Some commentators say this, this is not done. If a woman let down her hair in public, the rabbi said, it's grounds for divorce. It's an expression of sexuality and vulnerability and, and giving yourself to someone. And, and even to this day, we still have the expression, I'm going to let my hair down, you know? And, and it is, it, it, there's something about a woman letting her hair down and shaking, and that's what she does in this context. So you can understand why these prim and proper religious people are appalled by this. What is she doing? If Jesus had any idea what kind of woman she was, he would never allow this to be going on. He can't be a holy man. He can't be a prophet. This is unspeakable. How could he do this? And Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, We need to talk. I have something to say to you, Simon. And Simon foolishly says, speak, teacher, oh boy. (laughs) And he opens himself up to the correction, and Jesus gives the correction. And he says, Simon, say there was someone who had a debt of 50 and someone who had a debt of five, but neither of them could pay. Neither of them could solve the problem of their debt. But the one they owed the debt to forgave them both. Which one would love more? And Simon says, well, I suppose, yeah, the one who was forgiven more. Jesus says, you've spoken rightly, Simon. The reason this woman loves me is because she knows she's been forgiven much. And Simon, you don't realize that. Now, her life showed a lot more of a display of sinfulness. But the fact is, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
We've all gone our own way. No one is righteous. No, not one. And the wages of sin is death. We all need forgiveness. And whether your life has shown a lot of sinfulness externally or not, you need it equally. You know whether a spider sneaks in your house, a poisonous spider, and bites you in your sleep and you die? Or a lion attacks you and mauls you and kills you? Which one of those two are more dead? They're both dead, and that's the condition we all equally share. The problem Simon has is he's not identifying with this woman. She's beneath him. He doesn't realize that they're in the same boat in their need of forgiveness before Jesus. And so this woman gives this beautiful display that's so contrasting with Simon's perspective on all of this. He sees things in a religious context, in a superficial context, and she gives extravagantly. Listen to this. Great quote I found. Usefulness is not the most important thing in the universe. Usefulness is not our God. Efficiency is not our God. Public opinion is not our God. Traditional boundaries of politeness are not our God. Jesus is our God, and it is useful to use up our resources, all of them, to honor and glorify Him. And what I want you to realize is this beautiful mess of a woman, as great as an example as she is to us, is not the hero of the story ultimately. Who is? Jesus. See, she realized that Jesus is the real hero of this story. And here's the fact. As a beautiful mess as she is, Jesus is the supreme beautiful mess. What do I mean by that? He loved us. He offers forgiveness in giving himself. He became not just a weeping mess but a bloody mess. He entered into the suffering of our world and the sin of this world and he took it upon himself and became a mess in the place of our mess so that we could be forgiven much. I don't know if you're here this morning and you're not quite sure you need that much forgiveness. You do. I don't know if you're here this morning and you can't quite believe you're actually forgiven. If you've trusted Jesus, turned from your sin and trusted him, you really are forgiven and so you really need it and you really have it in Christ that's what these baptisms were about that's what all our worship expression is about Jesus although he's in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing took the form of a servant and being made in human likeness gave himself even to the point of death on a cross the Bible tells us that Jesus although he was rich became poor so that in him we might become rich That's the great exchange of the gospel. This woman is a hero because she points to the ultimate hero, Jesus, who became a sinful mess. Our sins considered his in a bloody mess in this messed up world and walked our filthy streets every day and felt the burden of life in this fallen world and took on our sin completely so that when we trust him, when we turn from our sin, we, like this woman, can be forgiven and we can be naked and unashamed in front of God and everyone else, if that's true. And we can live our lives with an extravagance and a reckless abandon, a joy, a generosity with all our resources, starting with our expression of worship that should be heartfelt, should not be so prim and proper and tearless, 
that we're not really showing the kind of emotion we should. Now, I'm saying everybody should have really expressive personalities. That's not what I'm saying, but whatever your personality, it should find an expression of gratitude and joy with an amazement that you've been forgiven. Not so concerned about how you appear to others, but wanting God to know that you love him and you're grateful for all he's done for us. And we don't need to cling to all the things that this woman was willing to give up and that we need to be willing to give up as well. We don't come to God with an agenda like Simon. This is what worshiping you looks like for me. And this is what you should be like if I'm going to worship you. And this is what my life better look like if I'm going to be yours. No, we come to him in abject poverty with nothing to offer him but our sin. And he gives us Christ's righteousness. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us adoption into his family. You know, I've been an adoptive father for 10 years now. We adopted my first, our first kid 10 years ago, Caroline. It's my family. We have, uh, it's that picture I showed you of them. But Caroline's the one on the right. She turned 18 yesterday. And, and Caroline, it was ours when she was eight. We went to, to Taiwan, and we picked her up in an orphanage. And she had all this external confidence. In the first 20 minutes I met her, we were walking around Taipei, and my nickname for our little girl that I gave her was the mayor. She walked around Taipei like she owned the place, like she was the mayor of Taipei. She had, she's just got swag. She was born with it. And the people in the orphanage said, it's good you're adopting her because ever since she came to the orphanage, we've, we've been saying, you know, it's like she's American. <laughs> now, that wasn't a compliment from their perspective. But just out there, like, coming through, coming through. I'm, I know what I'm talking about. I got lots of opinions. Real strong on the outside. But we knew deep down that this little girl had all the insecurities that an orphan would have. And of course she does. Of course she does. And it would show up in all kinds of ways in the midst of this external confidence. I'll never forget the first time we went to church with Caroline. We told her we were just going to be there a couple of hours. And, and she was starting to pick up English. She understood that. And so we were in the car waiting for her, and we were wondering what was taking her so long, and she finally came out. And she had both arms full of stuff. She obviously felt like she needed for the trip to church for two hours. Stuffed animals and, and games and a coloring book and some food and a change of clothes and a, a blanket. And, and we said, honey, we'll be back in two hours. You don't need all of she gave us a look that said, well, I'm not taking any chances. You know, it took her months before she started to feel finally secure enough to come to church with only some things in her pockets. <laughs> and I think of that image so many times. How often do I go through life carrying all this stuff I think I desperately need to be secure and significant? And this woman shows us that we can let it all go. And whether it's a matter of having enough today on the dinner table or whether we have even life tomorrow, we trust the God who gave it all for us. What a beautiful line we were singing. Hands held high and hearts abandoned to the one who gave it all for us. That's this woman, and that should be us, trusting him because we know we've been forgiven much. 
It's a good place to be. Lord, help us. We need to be in that place. We need to live our lives with hands held high and hearts abandoned because you gave it all for us. Jesus laid down his life. You gave your only son. The Spirit makes all this happen. Lord, we're thankful for who you are and what you've done for us. Would you help us to follow the lead of this woman, but even far more follow the lead of her Savior, who in the mess of this world took care of everything we needed him to. Help us to trust and rest, depend, worship with hearts abandoned, to give, to love, to serve in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.